Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Blanchett. In today's episode, we hear from two people living with HIV, Melanie Reese from the United States and Mark Thompson from the United Kingdom. Both Melanie and Mark have done important work in the HIV field as patient advocates. Today, they will be discussing their experiences in accessing and navigating their own HIV care with a focus on some of the barriers that can complicate and even block a person's journey across the HIV care continuum. In reviewing these challenges, Mark and Melanie share their insights on key strategies that can help to facilitate HIV care for patients, making the experience more straightforward and minimizing the impact that HIV has on their daily lives. This podcast is one component of a global educational program titled Keeping It Simple, Strategies Across the HIV Care Continuum. For more information about our guests and to access the full educational program, please visit the link in the show notes. So now let's turn it over to Melanie Reese and Mark Thompson. Hi, Melanie. It's lovely to see you. Lovely to see you, Mark. So it's really great to be doing this conversation today. And I think we should probably just set a bit of context. And, you know, we are both people of colour. We're queer and we're female and male, and we represent two groups most impacted by HIV globally. So our experiences are probably not unique, but there are lots of similarities, I think, that we'll find in our conversation. But I think it's also really important to point out that I'm in the UK, in Europe, and you're in the United States. And so our experiences will also differ because of the different healthcare systems that we engage with. Would you agree? I do agree that there will be similarities and the fact that our health systems are different. We still both, and anyone living with HIV, face barriers and challenges to receiving optimum health care and outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. So I thought we should, why don't we start off by just like, just giving the listeners a bit of some stuff about us and, you know, how long we've been diagnosed and how our starting of treatment and use of treatment has evolved over that time. So I was diagnosed in 1986. um, So that's nearly 36 years ago. And it was 15, 16 years before I started any antiretroviral therapy. What about yourself? I was diagnosed in 1999 and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or commonly known as the CDC, had recommendations for when to start person living with HIV on medications. And I fought against that because I wanted to be on medication. I know medication can slow the disease progress, and Mm. I wanted to stay alive and healthy as long as I could. So it took me five years before I convinced my provider to prescribe me um, medications. Mm. See, my experience was slightly different. Is that I, I mean, obviously for 15 years, there was no treatment available. When it did become available in 97, I was really reluctant to start treatment because I'd seen so many people that I knew suffer from really horrible side effects, you know, lipodystrophy whole range of things. And I felt relatively well. So I didn't want to start treatment. And the guidelines here in the UK 
at the time was a CD4 count of, I think it was like below 100 before you started treatment. So in 2001, my CD4 had gone down to about 120 and my doctor highly recommended that I started to go on to treatment. I started to get, you know, the opportunistic infection, small things were happening to me. And that's when I made the decision to start. But that was in consultation. It took a long time for me to get on board the treatment train. I suppose just expanding it out a bit, because we both, as well as living with HIV, we both worked and advocated for several people. What do you think are some of the barriers that people face when it comes to having optimal treatment access and treatment care? I think it's very, very important that the HIV testing and diagnosis is made as simple as possible because once you hear that diagnosis, you're in shock. And the first reaction is that result must be wrong. But nowadays, you can receive your diagnoses using the rapid testing, and you can get your answers to what that test result is in a short amount of time, but in the United States, they do rapid results, meaning once your result is known, you're rapidly linked to care. If you're positive, you would get a um, confirmatory test, and then you would be given the opportunity to be prescribed a regimen on the same day. And For the most part, that is the best way to do it because the thought behind that is test and treat because I don't know if they do this in London, but they're using this process or intervention called status neutral. If you're a positive and then you're given the opportunity to have a single pill regimen, which is has two to four medications in it. And that is easier to take than what we used to in the past. If they're negative, they're prescribed pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP. And they get that same day so they can be protected against acquiring HIV. So I believe that is the smartest way to do your testing program is to be able to link them to care and get them on a regimen right away. And if the diagnosis and testing isn't simplified, we do run the risk of losing people, what we call lost to follow up. So somebody may get a diagnosis, found it really stressful, really upsetting, and they don't return to see their healthcare provider. I think the way to possibly mitigate this, if you if there is a gap in between first diagnosis and confirmation, is to ensure that the patient is contacted and is seen in between that time and maybe linked in with external support services. I think it's really important that the initial treatment is kept as simple as possible for people who are newly diagnosed. And I think for a couple of reasons is that First of all, we know that the evidence tells us that starting treatment as soon as possible is good for our long-term health outcomes. So getting somebody to start treatment means that the virus gets to undetectable. 
more quickly. That means that their health outcomes are better and that means they won't pass HIV on. But I think secondly, what's really important is it gives somebody who's newly diagnosed a sense of control, particularly at a time when you've just got this diagnosis, your world has been turned upside down, your world may have already been turned upside down, which has led to you acquiring HIV. And I've seen in my work and with peers of mine who have started treatment, they feel a sense of, I've got a handle on this now. And I know from my own experience, when I started treatment, it felt like I was proactively doing something. So explaining treatment to people, getting them started is really, really important because it gives us a sense of controlling this thing, which very often feels out of control in our bodies. And I would add to that, that the provider should have a peer, either a peer specialist, a peer navigator with that client during that initial talking about medication. Because it's one thing when a provider can tell you, but it is so much more powerful when somebody who has been in your shoes can give you assurances and let them know, I'm here for you. Here's how you can reach me. Call me with any questions or concerns. It's that peer specialist or navigator that is really important. I mean, in my experience, a lot of my work has focused on communities of color, particularly people from the African continent. And there has been some reluctance in some people to start treatment, particularly when they feel well, you know? So if I'm okay, why would I take a drug and put something in my body if I'm doing all right? And I don't think we can really divorce people of color's experience of the healthcare system historically away from that. So I think that's one thing that I've experienced. And in my work, what I've tried to do is to empower people to understand that the treatment is really beneficial. And this is what happens if you don't take it, you know. And we spoke earlier about having two different healthcare systems. So here in the UK, treatment is is free. We have a national health service. We pay through that through national insurance contributions. So if I go to my clinic, I'm not charged anything. And even if you are a migrant or you have unsecure um, immigration status in this country, you can also get treatment. But in the US, it's not the case. So is that is not the case. So insurance is a barrier. Insurance is a barrier in many ways. One, if you don't have insurance, that most clinics will not take you. They do have clinics that have a sliding scale. So you're going to have to pay something, but they will treat you. But if there are others, if you don't have insurance, you can't be treated. And also with insurance, your clinic may only take certain insurance. Mm. You may have insurance, but you might not have the right insurance to go to the clinic that you prefer. And that's a barrier. And the recertification of insurance is often um, difficult for people because they want you to come up with all these documents over and over and over again. And I know here in the United States, people living with HIV are poor or have housing instability or are unhoused. 
getting the notifications, it's time to recertify, they don't get them because they're moving or don't have a permanent address. So that makes it hard. It should not be hard to want to be healthy. Yeah. And uh, that's something that needs to happen globally. And insurance is a barrier. And we have the Ryan White program here in the United States for those who are underinsured or uninsured. However, you have to go to HIV-specific clinics to use Ryan White, whereas if you had insurance, you can successfully get treated at a regular clinic or hospital uh, setting without people knowing your status Mm -hmm. because you're going to a regular doctor who can see you for any number of things. And so that's how people drop out of care. What's the use? Why? I can't afford that medication. I really don't want to take it, but if I can't afford it, I'm really not going to take it because I'm not going to get it. So those things are deterrents to uh, people staying engaged in healthcare and taking their medications. Yeah. We touched on earlier was around, and we didn't say the word, but stigma plays a huge part. And I think maybe we should focus on some of the internalized stigma that people face. We know that societal stigma is very real. It intersects with race, social and economic status, sexuality, gender, all of those things. But around treatment, one of the things that I found is that People with HIV may have internalized stigma, so negative thoughts about themselves and the virus, and therefore taking the treatment is experienced as a constant reminder that they're living with HIV and can increase their poor mental health. And I've always found that if healthcare professionals can ensure that when they're prescribing, they can talk to an individual about the internalized stigma, about the impact of mental health, that would be really helpful. And I've seen that that kind of, when I've run newly diagnosed courses for people, they start adhering to treatment much quicker if they've been in a supportive, informed environment. Have you experienced that? Um, yes, I have. And I have to say that I don't think providers are really capable of providing that kind of support for mm. their patients. It needs to be someone already living with HIV, who's been through the experience to be able to give the encouragement and the support that especially someone newly diagnosed or someone who's just re-engaging in care after quite a period of time not receiving care. And those positions need to be compensated at a professional level. And uh, that's economic justice right there. And that the value of a peer should not be diminished because they don't have the degrees and tons of certificates to show that how valuable they are. The lived experience should be enough because Mm -hmm. it's the lived experience that is the most helpful for people who are having a hard time adhering to their medication and going to the doctor. It's somebody who's already been through that. 
and the internalized stigma, it comes from having heard other people talk about others who have been HIV positive and the names that they hear them called and the cruel things that are said, but a peer could help saying, you know, these are things that happen. And when it gets to a point where it's bothering you too much to be able to adhere to your medication or come to for treatment, call me or I'll go with you to your appointments to make sure that you understand what is being talked about in those appointments. So internalized stigma is a real barrier to successful health outcomes. And I also think, you know, is that not every single person live with HIV feels stigmatized or has internalized stigma. There are some people that get a diagnosis and it may be traumatic, but they get over it and they manage well. But there are still external factors which may prevent them from adhering to taking their treatment when they need to. You know, for example, if they lived in shared living accommodation, if they're living with parents or in a relationship that is violent, they have unsecure migration status. And we also know that HIV, uh, some gender identities are criminalized as well. Yes, but what happens and what could help are support groups that meet weekly or bi-monthly or even monthly where you can get together. You know what you say in there stays in there, the confidentiality, and you can support one another or educate one another or just sharing common experiences, help them when they are out in the real world in which they have to live in and take care of themselves as a human being. So you've been advocating, you know, around women and treatment for a while. And um, what what are some of the particular issues that we need to be aware of when it comes to women and, and treatment? Depending on the age, women want to have children. And still in 2023, there are providers who don't support a woman's decision to have a child. And if their clinic does support them in doing that, it's the general society or your family and friends that you really want to have a baby. How long do you think you're going to be living? Are you going to be able to raise it till adulthood? Aren't you worried about passing HIV to your child? And there's a lot of uh, situations that women find themselves in uh, trying to make the decision. Do I keep this baby? Well, I live in Maryland. So gender-affirming care, reproductive health, abortion, all those things are intact. But there's so many states here that that's not true. So it becomes an extra burden for someone considering becoming a parent um, Mm -hmm. who's HIV positive. And also, there's very little research done where women are encouraged to participate. Mm -hmm. There are more research studies where men or transgender women or gay and bisexual men, even heterosexual men living with HIV, don't have much research done on them. And so 
you just feel left out. You feel left out of possible advancement in and in, in treatment options. And those are things that weigh heavy on women who are living with HIV. Yeah. And we both, you know, said that, you know, aging with HIV is an issue. Both of us are over 50 and we obviously are thinking about comorbidities, managing multiple healthcare professionals alongside our HIV treatment as well. So that's another factor that we need to think about. So, I mean, we, 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 you know, we've spoken about some of the barriers. So, you know, access, lack of information, issues around gender. What do we think are some of the solutions for kind of enabling this? I mean, for me, one of the first things, right, is injectables are on their way, which is great news, which for those people who don't like taking medication or tablet form or don't have an opportunity to keep it at home and all of these factors, injectables could be one solution. Yes. Injectables. Well, it's called a game changer because of the fact that you go to get an injection every other month. But some people aren't aware of the size of the needle that they use to inject in the your gluteus. You have two shots every other month. And they're they're not small needles. But for most people say, do you know, until it's time for me to go get my injection, I don't even think about HIV. And for a lot of people, that's a good thing mm-hmm. because that helps them to manage their mental health. They're able to feel they can be more sociable and accepted. They might not still not share their status, but they mm-hmm. don't feel they have to because yes. they don't have anything on their person or in their houses, because you have to go to a clinic to get the injections. Right. Yeah. I considered injectables recently. I, I, I'll share with you my experience. And I had my biannual appointment probably about four or five weeks ago. And I saw my nurse, who I've known for a number of years. And so I have a very good relationship with him, which was which is always a good starting point. And I asked him about injectables, you know, because I knew very little about them. And he was really clued up and he gave me very honest answers and also framed it in my, looked at my own lifestyle as well. He, he wanted to know who I was living with. Am I having problems taking my medication? All of these questions, first of all. So he got a really clear picture. Then he laid out to me exactly what the injections entailed. And as soon as I heard about the really long needles, I was like, I'm okay, thank you. I'm really happy. And I don't have a pill burden. I mean, I take my pills once a day with my breakfast, with my vitamins. So it's really just part of my routine. So in fact, for me, going in onto injectables felt more inconvenient than convenient, you know, because I don't have internalized stigma about taking my medication. But I think what really worked for me was to have an open and honest conversation with my nurse practitioner at the time and also speaking to a couple of people that I knew to speak to my peers as well what their views around injections were. I think some of the things that healthcare providers can do to minimize the impact of HIV infection and its medical management on our daily lives is to understand the person that's in front of them and to understand that 
taking it may be one pill a day it may be multiple pills a day but understanding how that fits into an individual's life and lifestyle so myself i'm a single man i live on my own it's really easy for me to take medication to fit that into my routine i have a really easy schedule in my life whereas for other people who are diagnosed they may have more chaotic lifestyles they may have busy schedules they may have children and families and other caring responsibilities that they need to factor in. They may also be living in spaces where they can't share or talk about their HIV or their medication. So I think the first of all is to understand what the individual circumstances are and try to make sure that we're taking um, the medication that's prescribed fits in with that lifestyle. I think a really good example is the medication I take and I have to take that with a certain amount of calories every day. I'm able to fit in having breakfast. I'm able to afford food. I'm able to look at what my calorie count is. If I didn't have money, if I was homeless, if I didn't have the opportunity to fix a meal every day, that medication wouldn't suit my needs. So I would need to have a conversation with my clinician to ensure that what's prescribed to me does fit with my daily needs. I think the second thing is to try to ensure that there is ongoing support. So when we return for our clinic appointments, and they may be um, long periods between those clinic appointments, we are able to have an opportunity to talk about any of the issues that might be coming up. And I think thirdly, I would say that healthcare professionals should be available for people to talk about what their medication and treatment needs are when they need to talk about them. What matters most to the person sitting across from you needs to be addressed more importantly than the medication regimen that is assigned because people have various needs. And if they did a, a thorough intake in their um, visit, they can look down to see if there are other needs that are blaringly apparent that need to be addressed before they can have the discussion about what medication would best fit into their client's life. So, yeah, it's very important that it be as simple as possible. And if they're newly diagnosed, they don't particularly know what is simple as far as medications are concerned. The provider, knowing that person's daily schedule or lifestyle or prescribing a regimen, those things are very important. So we've been relatively fortunate on our treatment journey, Melanie. And I, I think it might be just, you know, for the, for the benefit of people who are listening, to just maybe just think about some of the things that have helped us over the years. And I think the first thing that leaps out at me, which you, you described so beautifully at the beginning, was advocating on your own behalf. And um, what would you say are the tools that we need to enable us to do that? First of all, I think a person needs to realize that your provider, doctor, nurse are human beings, and you are a human being. And don't be intimidated by their degrees because they learn a lot from us as patients because they need to get information from us for them to be able to help us. So mm -hmm. it's a, a teaching learning situation for both the provider and the patient, and that you know what works best for your body as an individual, and you need to help the doctor help you to help your 
self. So advocating for self is important, not just in your healthcare matters. That's in every area of life. Yeah. But also acknowledging for many of us who are living with HIV or diagnosed, we come from marginalized communities. We come from communities where we are, we are taught not to self-advocate, where we are put in positions where we are less power, where we have less power or we feel we have less power. So it's really important that for me, our healthcare professionals can understand that if, for example, you have an African-American woman in front of you, she may feel that she doesn't have the opportunity to talk to you, to be open with you. So create that space of safety for that person. And so as well as the patient recognizing that the healthcare professional is a human, the healthcare professional needs to recognize that the patient in front of them is human too. And, and a whole person and, and not whole the person. disease. The not whole disease. person and not just the disease that they're yeah. seeing you to keep healthy. Yeah. The one thing that has, has helped me, and I will always say this, is peer education and peer support. So other people who are living with HIV. When I was first diagnosed in 1986, the first number that I called, I spoke to another person who had HIV. And they weren't able to tell me much, but just knowing there was somebody else in the same situation as myself really, really helped me. And so throughout my work and throughout my own personal life, engaging with people who have walked the same path as me has always been incredibly helpful. It's not measured enough. We don't kind of value and look at how that works impacts on people's lives and how it can also not just benefit the patient, it really benefits the clinician as well. Also, yes. And MEPA, the Meaningful Involvement of People with HIV. It's part of the United States um, National HIV AIDS Strategy, and it's associated with economic justice. Meaningful involvement doesn't mean for me to volunteer. Mm. It means for me to use my experiences to help someone else, but it needs to be monetized. In my eyes, a peer, educator, navigator, support person is a professional. Absolutely, absolutely. So I just want to kind of just wrap up really and just kind of have an acknowledgement that, you know, we, we mentioned earlier that we are operating in two very different healthcare systems and People may be listening to this from around the globe and will operate in very different healthcare settings. But what we both identified and have experienced that there is there are challenges within our healthcare systems, you know, from a number of different factors, be they political or be they economic. And we're also, I think we're also understanding as, as patients, as people live with HIV, that there are pressures put onto healthcare professionals. There isn't a huge amount of time to do all of the things that we would like to happen. And prescribing treatment isn't a one-size-fits-all. Our lives are really nuanced. They are complex. And so I think our ask is to take some time, if you have the time, to listen, to engage with us as people live with HIV. And I love that meaningful involvement of, of us in this journey. Yes, absolutely. And that's one thing that they need to really realize that, like, for instance, cultural uh, humility. A lot of people call it cultural competency. You cannot 
be culturally competent. That's an impossibility because things are always changing. And we come from all different cultures, walks of lives, lived experience. Absolutely. Thanks, Melanie. Thank you both for sharing those important insights with us. And thank you for listening. Look out for more episodes in this series at clinicaloptions.com slash HIV.